Downloads <coughs> of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and today's episode I'm featuring um, two teachers in the Kampa Buddhist tradition, Greg Williams and Neil Toyota. I'm going to allow um, Greg Williams first to introduce uh, Neil. Go ahead, Greg. Oh, hi. So Neil uh, is um, my husband, and uh, he was born in Hawaii, and um, his father was in the military, and the family was moved to Germany for a few years. And when Neil was still young, um, they moved to Los Angeles, and so Neil spent uh, the rest of his childhood and pretty much the rest of his life living there in Los Angeles, and uh, went to college at the University of Southern, Southern California. He studied uh, pharmacy and um, got into the business world and uh, became a, cons- a consultant to corporations. And uh, we met. Um, but he he <laughs> he started uh, studying Buddhism, I, I guess, about fourteen years ago, and uh, sort of dabbling. I think is how he might describe it. And then. About 10 years ago, he became quite serious about it and started uh, studying regularly. And we met, um, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, uh, we met about 2010, and uh, yeah, the rest is history there. Very good. So Neil, why don't you introduce Greg? Uh, yeah, thank you. For, uh, thank you, Vijay, for inviting us to be here. And uh, I love the idea that we're introducing each other. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fun. So I hope I get this. History, right. So Gregory was actually born in western New York, rural western New York, and uh, by implication, uh, a very conservative and Christian environment. And uh, that Christian upbringing actually then led him to attend college where his major was, uh, a Baptist college where his major was biblical studies. And his intention was to actually become a minister or a pastor. That did not happen, but he did have a minor in uh, gerontology. And what he ended up doing career-wise was to run or administer nursing homes, Mm -hmm. which then led to uh, a career where he moved seniors. So he was a senior mover, meaning he moved senior citizens from independent living generally to uh, assist living or a retirement village. Uh, So that's pretty much his career, his education, his career. Uh, Gregory first walked into a Buddhist center, a Kadampa Buddhist center, in uh, August of 2010. It was actually on his first night uh, walking into a Buddhist center that we actually met. And over the years, what we've done is we've practiced Kadampa Buddhism together. Uh, and in late 2016, we actually moved from Los Angeles to New York City together. And we moved to New York City with the intention to practice full-time. So we both retired from our careers and moved to New York City to practice full-time Kadampa Buddhism full-time. Good, good. So um, when people attend your classes or... People out there sometimes seek uh, going out to find Buddhist classes and so many Buddhist classes out there, meditation courses, meditation classes. Um, what do you recommend, uh, what are the best practices for them when going to a meditation class? Uh, how can they get the, the, the best, the most 
the benefit out of the class, you know, get the right mindset, this kind of thing. So one of the things that I try to emphasize when people walk into one of my classes is that they want to enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. That enjoyment is a primary goal of being there. And I will actually ask them during the opening meditation, during the initial meditation, to, which is intended to settle their minds, to try to cultivate a sense of happiness at being there. Uh, because for the most part, if we walk into a meditation class and we prepare to listen to Buddhist teachings and we're tight or we're anxious or we're nervous, we're going to be limited in terms of what we get out of that experience. So a happy mind, an open heart, those are, the, those are pretty much the starting points for, I think, in, in having a positive experience in class. Yeah, and I think that sometimes people come into classes because, you know, they've had some suffering, they've had some problems, and, you know, being able to go in there and say, I'm going to put aside those problems, try to be open-minded, open-hearted, listen to the teachings, and then come back to this, these uh, so-called problems with a new perspective. And Greg, would you have anything to add to that? Or? No, I, I like what you said, and I like what yeah. you said, too. I think a lot of people come to Buddhism because there's something going on in yeah. their life that's sort of driving this, you know, search for relief from suffering. Or, you know, for me, it's been many years of trying to find answers to some of the bigger questions of life. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, coming in with an open mind and, uh, you know, maybe not expecting too much. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, yeah, so big, big world to explore. You know, I I felt when I came in that from the first teaching that I heard, I felt like the answers that I had been searching for my whole life were here within the Buddhist world, and I just relaxed into that. And I just said, you know, you don't need to know everything right now. You just, uh, you know, good enough to know that you you're in the right place. Yeah, and also I think that um, you know sometimes with textbooks when you look at book large books and you know, with many pages in it, you're like overwhelmed, like there's so much to learn, you know, and that, um, but by what, while Buddhism may appear, you know, vast and complex, um, it has an organization to it. It's like the Lam Rim organization where there are stages to the path to enlightenment that the goal is that we're going to be, you know, free of suffering. We're going to, we're going to be in uh, some kind of uh, state where, you know, we're, I don't know. We'll get to that later. But right now we know that there are stages to that, but there are steps along the way and very organized. So if you talk a little bit to the organization and how that helps you in your practice and the way of teaching and your teaching as well. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a very good question. So one of the things I'll say is that uh, Buddha gave 84,000 teachings. And so that is a considerable number of teachings. And he tended to be... To, to be traveling while he taught. And he taught uh, pretty much directly to the people who appeared to him for those teachings. And so you could say that as Buddha gave 84,000 teachings over the course of 50 years, they weren't necessarily linear. There wasn't necessarily an organization to them. Having said that, uh, for example, the tradition that we practice, which is Kadam Buddhism, or we're Kadampas, uh, follows a very structured type of Buddhist practice. And uh, that Buddhist practice is called Lam Rim, where for the most part, 
most of Buddhist teachings are encapsulated for us in 21 meditations. Now, these teach, these, each of these meditations are, can be broad and vast, uh, but we're structured along the lines of 21 meditations. Well, we, the term is lam-rim, which are stages of the path to enlightenment. So, vast number of teachings, 84,000 in fact, organized in a very sequential way. Yeah, good, good. So, um, why don't we talk a little bit about how these, how this structure for Greg, how the structure can help you more quickly understand and apply these teachings to your life. So, you know, rather than sitting in textbook and studying, you know, oh, you know, now I'm going to memorize these terms and various, various technical things, but there's some way the structure allows you to more quickly understand these things, you know, that out there. What would you say to that? Well, Greg? I think it gives you context. You kind of mm. know where you start and kind of where you're going to be in the middle of the path and, and where you end up. So, you get this wonderful framework or skeleton, yeah, and they're really beautiful. So um, the first of the Lamrim meditations is the preciousness of our human life. You know the fact that uh, it's, it's special. We have all the wonderful ingredients that we would need to progress, to become, to transcend, to you know find our way out of the suffering, to find the happiness that we're seeking. And so it just starts with that. It, Acknowledgement. You know, we do have the Dharma, we have the teachings, we have a human mind and a human life with wonderful conditions. And so it's, it's starts off with this beautiful foundation and then just, you know, progresses from there. Yeah. So why don't we skip ahead to, because uh, I have some questions planned out, but I have, uh, go to uh, the teacher and the teachings. So we have, you know, your relationship with the individual, you, you being a teacher, you, know, you both act as teachers and you're giving teachings, but also your relationship with the, the people who you learned under. Uh, who, who taught you, uh, what would you say, um, do you place the emphasis on the teachings or the teacher and, you know, kind of how that, how you balance the, the three refuges of, uh, refuges of, refuge of Buddhist practices, you know, uh, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Uh, so how would you, how would you formulate that in your relationships to your teachings and teachers? Yeah. Well, I think you've captured uh, a lot of the answer by First of all, referring to the three jewels. Yeah. The three jewels for us are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And so Buddha are Buddha or Buddhas are the enlightened beings. And for us, uh, our principal enlightened being is Buddha Shakyamuni. Buddhism, as we know it, comes from Buddha Shakyamuni. But many holy beings, uh, many enlightened beings out there. Uh, the Dharma is uh, Buddhist teachings uh, and not just Buddhist teachings, but our inner realizations of, of Buddhist teachings and the Sangha as a spiritual community. All three are critical to the success of our Buddhist practice. And so, and at any given time, at any given time, our reliance on any of these jewels, if you will, uh, can vary. So there are times when we are very much reliant on the direct guidance of a teacher, there could be times, though, when we kind of go into a period of deep study, mm. a deep study, contemplation, meditation, etc. And there are other times when it's very much the most appropriate for us to rely on our community of spiritual practitioners. They're not separate and apart. They're highly integrated, but but it is all about uh, reliance on the three jewels and and turning to them as appropriate, as needed. 
And Greg, um, you know, sometimes uh, there, I think uh, uh, Neil was hinting at that uh, there sometimes there's like momentary, you know, realizations where we're re- reading something. We're like, oh, that, that really makes sense to me. But then, you know, how have you, have you, if you could relate a little bit about sometimes when you connect with something very powerfully and how you're able to sustain that for the long haul, you know, seeing those realizations or yeah, any moments where you have those powerful connections, yeah. These um, insights you're talking about. Yeah, just, yeah. How do you continue to maintain that? Yeah, uh, exactly, under- exactly. In your own life, like when you first started with Buddhism, you realized, oh, you know, there's something here. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, let me continue to study with it. And how do you keep that momentum going? You know, how would you say? Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, so, <laughs> I mean, I would say, you know, definitely uh, the to the reliance on the spiritual community and other practitioners and teachers and um, just um, being inspired by the people that I've that I know I mean certainly the teachers are many fabulous teachers in our tradition and um, they've really inspired me and it's a big part of why I've continued to be a Buddhist. I didn't set out to be a Buddhist. It really, I just happened to come to the class in Los Angeles with a friend of mine who invited me to come to a class and you know, I never left. I, you know, I was on another path, and then I got on this path, and you know, I've stayed. And a big reason that I've stayed is because of the the teachers and uh, the inspiration. You know, just what they demonstrate. So, um, yeah, and then just um, the teachings and what resonates for me within the teachings and kind of what I understand and you know think would be a good thing for me to to study and meditate on and yeah. That's great. That's great. I think that, uh, yeah, I'll just remind listeners of the Radio Free Brooklyn, and we're having a conversation about kind of Buddhism, the the uh, the tradition of Kanapa Buddhism, and how um, we've connected with our lives and our lives with the different teachings, and and how powerful it can be to to transform the truth of the teachings into empowerment in our lives, empower us to uh, act in our lives, to be individuals in the community, and not just our sangha community, but in the journal community. Uh, so I would say um, I would go to, um, you know, like Buddhism, generally speaking, talks about, you know, how there's this baseline of samsara, that it's uh, samsara is a state of suffering and dissatisfaction. You know, many people are aware of the Four Noble Truths that, you know, many people I talk to saying, you know, that, that uh, Buddhism teaches that you know, many, many people are aware of that. But, um, you know, kind of the idea that we're transforming this, you know, inner state of uh, dissatisfaction into uh, a pure land that, for all living beings, and it seems very meaningful. But uh, as um, you know, I was saying, you know, like we have to kind of find that joy, find that bliss. And sometimes, you know, for me at least, you know, navigating these paths, sometimes I get very focused. You know, it's like playing chess. You know, like you're not enjoying it. You're like, I got to remember, don't don't be angry. You know, I got to remind myself, don't be upset. You know, it's like banging my head against a wall. So how do you find those joy places? For me, it's very, it's very like focused, upsetting almost. You know? know. Yeah, and, and that is that is a very good point because I think I was going to say in the West, but in the East and the West, I think as as human beings, we tend to be very results oriented, and uh, increasingly we're rather impatient in terms of how much how how, how much effort we're uh, willing to apply to to experience results and you know how much how much work we're willing to do so i think it's very important and we'll go back to uh always rely upon a happy mind yeah. which is one of which is one of our teachings and 
And, and it's not a Pollyannish type of happiness. I think what we want to do is really recognize when we have experienced a shift, when uh, I think the term you used was when we've experienced a momentary realization. Mm-hmm. Gre- the term Gregory used was when we've had an insight or when we've done something differently. For example, when our tendency would have been to react with anger, but that anger did not arise for us. Uh, or if anger did arise, we didn't act on that anger. We need to stop and recognize those moments. Uh, it, uh, we need to encourage ourselves. I think a mind of gratitude, look what I just did, is is is, is very helpful. And then uh, having other people around us support us with a look what you just did <laughs> is also is also very helpful. But but you're absolutely right. We're trying to change the paradigm for ourselves, and that can be very difficult and we get a lot of societal messages that tell us you know the message if you're not paying it if you're not angry you're not paying attention you know can put a lot of pressure on us and so we need to continually encourage ourselves that that small progress is progress and uh rejoice in whatever progress we make yeah bravo for that line that you know, to upset the idea that everyone has the idea that if you're not angry you're not paying attention and that's so it's almost like, no, no, we have to respond appropriately. We have to, you know, we have to respond in a way that's fully alive and present to the moment and not just succumb to that anger, you know? I, I definitely agree with that. Go ahead, Greg. I, I, you know, it's a good point, too, because I think you know, Buddhism, we're very much looking at our mind and mm. kind of looking what's in there and what are my intentions, what am I up to? And I, I think, you know, for me, and I don't I think it's uncommon that the more looking you do, the more you find that maybe you're not happy with. And it can be kind of tempting to <laughs> use what you're seeing <laughs> as an opportunity to kind of beat yourself up and actually feel worse in the process. So, um I think for, for me, it's been very much reliance again, reliance on teachers, reliance on my sangha. I've, I've had people point that out to me that, hey, you're, you're getting a little heavy on yourself and you're not really, you're, you're missing something here in this process. This process of identification should be something, as Neil said, you should be jo- rejoicing about it. Mm. Um, and our teacher here in New York is constantly teaching on rejoicing that, look, you've seen it, you've found it, you know, it's great that you see it, it's an opportunity for you to purify it and, and wonderful and not, not, just instead go down a different path, which can, you know, be leading us to discouragement and, you know, causing us to even want to give up our practice. So, yeah. But reliance, to me, it's this thing that this spiritual community is so extremely important, and we're really fortunate. I'm fortunate because I live with somebody who's, who's, you know, a practitioner who's able to point things out to me, and I'm a part of a wonderful community here in the city of New York, and was in the city of Los Angeles as well with wonderful practitioners who have a lot of wisdom and lot of kindness and compassion and you know are, are very glad to jump in and kind of help i want to follow on something that gregory said about our teacher here in new york city mm-hmm. uh how he emphasizes uh joy and he emphasizes rejoicing uh when we in the progress that we're making the other thing is that i think it's very important for us to understand is that buddhism is very much about realizing our potential actualizing our potential. So if we continually remind ourselves that I may not be behaving optimally now, I may not be feeling enlightened or liberated right now, but I have the potential 
I have the Buddha nature as our potential, mm-hmm. the potential to become completely liberated, to find everlasting happiness, and to bring that freedom and liberation and happiness to others. If we can stay connected to that, that can help us stay the path. That can, that can be fuel for continuing when things aren't necessarily going the way we'd like them to go. Good, good. And I know that the Buddhism te- defines virtue as, uh, you know, the um, the result of virtue is only is only happiness. I believe is the definition, or some kind of it's something along those lines. I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but you know, virtue results in happiness, and that you know, ignorance or something that's uh, ignorant it results in suffering. So you know, sometimes you know, when we think, oh, I'm, I'm trying to be loving or good intentions, I have good intentions, and we realize that our wisdom, our attempt to be wise, is our attempt to apply. Wisdom and virtue is actually mixed with that ignorant, ignorant attachment, ignorant of ignorance of whatever it is, you know, of anger. Uh, so, you know, when performing a virtuous action, what is most essential to ensure? How do we sift through that and say, oh, we're going to have a, we're going to be more wise? You know, how, how, do you, how do you shift sift through that kind of, yeah? Well, I think it's very much a process, yeah. too. It's like um, you know, just starting out by becoming aware can be like a really wonderful thing. And, and maybe that takes a year or two years to just even become aware of what's yeah. going on within your own mind. You know, Geshe our teacher, writes about um, unexamined assumptions and habitual ways of thinking are being problematic to us. So you know, I think so many of us, and I, I certainly know that that would be me, you know, just acting out of habit and not even aware I'm still, you know, many years into this practice. I know that I'm doing things that are coming from someplace I'm not even aware of that, that um, mm. you know, are not, not, not virtuous because I can see people responding in ways to me that are, you know, indicative of something that I'm, that I'm doing that's provoking something within them. So um, I think, yeah, definitely starting, it's a process and it's, it's, it's going in, it's, it's doing the looking, uh, identifying things, and then, um, yeah, just working on... Uh, paying attention to the teachings and just going, well, here's an opportunity for me to practice. You know, like Neil said, you know, rely upon a happy mind. So yeah. in this moment, rather than getting angry, which is something that I do but don't know I do, or yeah. something that I do that is a bad habit, maybe I'm going to try and practice relying on a happy mind. It's also, I think, very important, not I think, it is very important for us to know the difference between virtuous minds, those minds that will lead to happiness and uh, what we call deluded or non-virtuous minds, those minds that will be the source of pain and suffering. So it's important for us, and we do this through study and practice, to begin to differentiate the two, to become very clear about uh, what is the cause of happiness and what is the cause of suffering. So confusion about anger, for example. Some people feel that an act of anger will bring a good result, and we need to be very clear about that. Uh, we've been having lots of conversations about around stress and anxiety, and there are people who feel that stress and anxiety are, are good motivators, mm. so bring it on. I think we want clarity around yeah. those minds that cause happiness and those minds that cause problems. And I think also, too, it's uh, helpful to look at, um, I love what you said, uh, but yeah, also to good. look at the nature of happiness, you know, mm. what what is happiness? So, you know, you know, do we even know really what happiness is? You know, we're, 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 we learn that, you know, maybe much of what we understand to be happiness is really um, suffering that's mm. masquerading as happiness. So, you know, for example, relationships or food or whatever the, the pleasure that we get from 
from them, uh, you know, are they really <laughs> real sources of happiness or, you know, have we just confused ourselves by, by thinking, well, it lies in the, in the food or it lies within the relationship. So I, I think contemplating what, what happiness is, is a really important um, contemplation for a, a Buddhist practitioner. Yeah. It's what we try to get down into the real sources of happiness. That's what that's what virtue is, and by that um, we mean they can never become causes of they can never cause us to suffer. So, like for example, just to illustrate for the audience, you know, I'm sitting down, I'm feeling pleasant, you know, because I'm sitting down. But then after a little while of sitting down, you know, it suddenly changes into I'm discomforted. So I stand up, and then you know I'm standing up, relief, relief, you know, and then I'm like, oh, I'm nice to stand up, but then. After a long time standing up, it's like, oh, I have to sit down. So it's like, a, this is what they call changing suffering. So it's not actually happiness. This is the relief of the suffering previously caused, and then you're in a cycle, you know? So Exactly. And food yeah. is a good example. Yeah, I mean, food is a good example. Living here and moving yeah. to New York City, it was just amazing, all these incredible restaurants. And so, you know, but it, it feels like happiness. And, you know, it does bring happiness. But is it the kind of happiness that we really want to be cultivating, or is there a, a more authentic a form of happiness that doesn't uh, result in weight gain and yeah know, <laughs> medical <laughs> problems <laughs> also, addiction yeah <laughs> to you know food yeah yeah and also it's good to that we push the side you know we're thinking about in terms of delusions and and ignorance and that these kind of, a different framework than you know sin and sinners that many of us have grown up kind of in some way influenced by the idea of a sinner sinner um you know, and this perspective of ignorance and delusion is something that is interesting to to chew on, to think uh, how that language change allows or permits a new way of looking at the problem. So, well, you know, yeah. I mean, I have to say that that was really one of the reasons that I actually said that. I mean, this is for me is the idea that um, things that I were doing were ripening. It's, it's mm. experiences on my own, on my in my own mind. You know. I was contributing to my suffering and I was contributing in a way to, to my happiness. And suddenly I became very interested in the spiritual path, which was, you know, very different than the idea of, you know, if you do something sinful, someone's going to be mad at you or, you know, banish you to you know, <laughs> Siberia or something. So once I, once I realized that I, I was playing a role in it and, yeah. um, you know, I wasn't sure how much I believed that, but, but yeah. I was very much open to the idea and, just the idea that I was playing a role and I had an opportunity to actually change things um, was very uh, inspiring. The idea, the idea, the idea of sin is really interesting, isn't it? Uh, so one of uh, uh, there is a Buddhist concept uh, that is very profound and uh, is worthy of a lot of contemplation and discussion and meditation, and that is the concept that living beings have no faults. Mm. And so our nature is faultless. I mean, that is our Buddha nature. That is what is going to ripen into uh, the attainment of enlightenment. Uh, so we are not inherently faulty. We are not inherently sinful. It's what the, 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 the faults that we see are really the faults of delusions. They're the faults of anger. They're the faults of attachment. They're the faults of confusion or ignorance and we, we use the analogy of salt water salt water is not by nature salty the salt can actually be removed from the water and then the pure nature of the water is then revealed it's the same thing with our delusions we living beings have no faults 
we are essentially pure. We need to manifest that purity. But, uh, and to do that, we need to remove our delusions and cultivate uh, or cultivate our good qualities. There is no inherently sinful person there that we're trying to enlighten. Yeah. Because that, by definition, would be contradictory. Yeah, I think that for the audience also, you know, in the last episode of uh, Truth to Power Show, we talked a little bit about poetics and how uh, images and metaphors and can really inform the way we look at a problem. So that image of salt water, you know, and, and removing the salt is like a metaphor or an analogy or some kind of way in which we can get an inroad into the problem. And we're using our imagination, in a sense, to say, focus on, you know, salt water has, you know, the nature of this water is pure and it's got the salt in it, but the nature is kind of working on, chewing on that image. So what role would you say is the um, imagination play in Buddhism? Like ima- the imagination taking these images and, and, you know, the blue sky, how the nature of the sky is, you know, always a bit large, you know, the clouds may pass through, all these kind of essential images. Uh, how would you say that really plays into Buddhism and, gives you pathways for well I mean meditation is very big in Buddhism it's uh, you know we're, we're imagining all the time so it's just uh, imagine you know, what are we imagining and are we Im- imagining things that are leading us towards enlightenment or are we imagining things that are actually moving us closer to a hell realm so I'm, and I think that we all know the yeah. experience of living, you know, in, in this life and in, in hell realm, you know, experience. And, uh, you know, where did that come from? So it's all, it's all mine. So yeah, definitely the, the role of imagination is incredibly important. Mm. It, 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 it aligns with the idea that, what Gregory's saying aligns with the idea that the Buddhist, uh, principle that, uh, Everything is created by mind. Yeah. And so uh, everything then, you could say, is imagined. Everything is a product of mind. Uh, another term that we use to reflect the samsaric side of, of imagination is uh, hallucination uh. Or, or even nightmare. Yeah. Uh, but these are all states of mind. They're not, necess- they're not dependent on outer experiences they are entirely inner experiences so everything is created by mind uh, nirvana enlightenment is a mental state uh, samsara the hellish experiences they are mental states as well everything is com- created by mind everything is an act of imagination yeah the dreamlike nature the ultimate dreamlike nature of a world that you know if the if the dream world is real uh, if you say the dream world is unreal then the waking world is also unreal, but if you, if you say the waking world is real, then you have to say the dream world must be real. So, um, but uh, anything else, uh, Greg? That's a powerful analogy yeah. or metaphor, the waking and, and sleeping, and, and Buddha does does say that, is yeah. that, uh, you know, there, there, there really is no difference between the waking world and the dream world. One world appears to the awakened mind, the, the, the mind that is awake, and the other appears to the dreaming mind, but they are all mind. Yeah, and then also, you know, some people might say, oh, but, you know, I really like, <laughs> really liking that Snickers bar. I really like, you know, that ice cream treat. I really love, 
we have a great enjoyment out of all these you know pleasurable activities that we engage in on a day-to-day basis but buddhism says seems to me it says you're taking the the energies of these you know that this you're taking you're kind of sapping out which i how would you phrase i don't know, I don't know what the vocabulary is but you're kind of drawing from the um these everyday pleasures and you're kind of combining them with a, a higher cause or how would you how would you, i don't even know the vocabulary yeah but, yeah but the, begin to approach that, 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 that's yeah. a, that's a really interesting concept now, yeah. first of all i want to say that i'm glad we're kind of going down this path yeah. when we're talking about enjoyment like enjoyment of a snickers bar because yeah. sometimes people think that if you're a buddhist then you're obsessed with suffering yeah and you're obsessed with pain not 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 at all the case uh so what you're talking about is transforming or let's say our enjoyments yeah. or in, into a spiritual path so if for example we're munching on a snickers bar mm-hmm. And we're enjoying it greatly. One of the ways we can work with that experience is to ask the question, is this enjoyment that I'm experiencing inside of my mind or is it outside of my mind? Mm. Is this enjoyment a mental state or is this enjoyment a Snickers bar. <laughs> and I think it's a really it's a it's a really important contemplation. Where is this pleasure coming from? Mm. And it leads you back to mind and begins helps you to understand that this object that's outside of me is maybe a contributor to my happiness or a contributor to my suffering. But the actual experience that I'm having is mental. So enjoy the Snicker Bite into the Snickers bar, enjoy it, and then ask yourself, is this enjoyment inside of my mind or outside of my mind? And I think we'll, we'd all con- come to the conclusion that it's inside of our mind. Yeah. And I think that's such an important thing to try to get your mind around. I mean, it seems like something that we should all just know, but yeah. I don't know that we know that. You know, Geshe has written a beautiful book on uh, called How to Understand the Mind, and he talks about in there, the um, the ingredients in a mind, you know, some of them, like the delusions, can be removed, and some, like the virtuous states of mind, are just part of the mind, and we, they're not to be removed. And then there are some parts that are um, critical to to have a fully functioning mind, and one of those is feeling. So I remember when I first read that, it just struck me as, oh wow, feelings are mind; they're part of my mind, and. You know, they're an essential, essential ingredient, and I, I think that, that you know that insight, that understanding, is can be very much a part of kind of unlocking this prison that we're that we're living in, where we're thinking that uh, pleasure and you know the things that uh, make our life we're living are all somehow outside of our mind, and if we can just get them and own them and get enough of them, and get them when we want them, that somehow. We're going to be fine with some putting over yeah. <laughs> everything on things external when really, in fact, the feelings are our mind. Yeah, and I think that connecting those uh, you know pleasant feelings with some you know that I wish that everyone could have this or some kind of you know dedication. You know, a lot of times we have dedications in uh, in Buddhism that uh, we're saying you know uh, may the merit and earn in this uh, experience be dedicated or connected to. The future enlightenment of all beings is something that in Buddhism, for those of you uh, in the audience who uh, have attended Buddhist uh, puja or 
prayer service, you know, they say at the end they dedicate. So I would ask, like, you know, sometimes there's some confusion in me and a lot of the people that, you know, is there some future time in which um, are we, are we, we're, we're hoping oh, some future time, you know, everyone's going to be enlightened or is it, some, is it just the dedication itself? You know, is that, that in that moment de- and just connecting with that? How would you, how would you, how in your own experience, you know, how do you kind of, you know, how would you express that, you know, dedication aspect? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a really interesting question. Yeah. Uh, so dedication. So dedication is a practice where when we perform a virtuous action, mm. when we do something good, mm. uh, we dedicate the positive energy that we have accumulated through, that, through, through the act mm. to, generally speaking, a future result. Mm. Uh, because that comes from an understanding of karma. Yeah. A uh, virtuous action now creates, is the cause for happiness in the future. Uh, and you can say that in the moment when we've had a good experience, we've done something good, that that is the result or an effect of previous good actions. And so, you know, you can say that time gets a little fuzzy here. Yeah. Because, you know, you're, you're experiencing effect and, and you're using that effect to dedicate the, 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 uh, towards the future results. And so I guess I can summarize that by saying it's all good. <laughs> the yeah. dedication is good. You take the positive energy that you've had, you've, 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 you've generated a good action, and you say, may this be the cause for future happiness, both of myself and, very importantly, because we're Mahayanists, for the happiness of others. Yeah. I think back to your another question that you had asked us earlier about kind of staying encouraged and growing. To me, that's an important part of like being focused, knowing where is it that I want to go, what do, what do I want to gain a deeper understanding of. And the idea of uh, dedicating the positive things that I've done in that direction is just helping me to direct my mind. But yeah, I, I do believe you know the time can be kind of a trippy thing, you know. <laughs> Yeah. You know, where is the future and you know where is the present and where is the past you know we're, we're constantly kind of yeah that, that that's a big thing to yeah. try to figure out uh, i like to believe it'll uh, ripen into something in the future and in the way that i'm dedicating it but i'd like to believe that it's ripening in the moment too in the way that i dedicate it and i'd like to believe that maybe it could even ripen in the past yeah I'm dedicating it it's just so, uh, yeah. as neil says it's, it's all good it's, where <laughs> is it it's to me it's the, the, the why I do it, why I think it's a, a good practice is focusing the mind. It's just what what is, you know, we start all of our classes or our meditations with an intention where we want to go, and then when we finish, we complete it with a dedication, which is kind of helping that energy go down that, that, that same path that where, where we set our intention. Yeah, and also the the reliance on, we're circling back to something we said in the beginning, about the reliance on Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, you know, and these kind of... Um, energy spaces or I don't know some people have viewed them as deities uh, uh, you know within the Buddhist path um, you know kind of looking at how they're viewed and how they can how we kind of rely upon them to um, guide us in this this tricky area of uh, you know kind of doing thoughts and prayers or something I don't know we'll get back to that later but if you speak a little bit to Buddhism Bodhisattvas then yeah uh, yeah so for me uh, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and our lineage gurus and mm-hmm. and even uh, 
practitioners uh, who who appear to me to be making wonderful progress or appear to me to be sincere and pure practitioners, they're all sources of inspiration to me. And uh, when I look at an image of a Buddha, I understand that that image is a representation or a manifestation of particular good qualities that I want to achieve. Mm. And what they represent is the actualization of those good qualities. And for me, a practice would be, they were once like me, so I have the potential to become just like them. And so that leaves me forward. I look at uh, Avalokiteshvara, for example, and I see Buddha of compassion, and it inspires me to train my mind in compassion. I see Buddha Manjushri, a Buddha of wisdom, and it inspires me or it reminds me of the wish to attain wisdom. I see Mother Tara, Buddha Tara, and who is a swift protector, and it reminds me that my path is to become a protector of others. And so that's how the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, for example, inspire me. Yeah, and also in our discourse, when we think about public discourse, they're like, oh, you know, some people are dismissive about thoughts and prayers, and, you know, what, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing? It's always about what, how are we engaging, you know, actions, actions, actions. You know, it's not about, you know, people have this very, you know, like, oh, you're just thinking about, you're just thinking positive thoughts. What is that really doing? You know, so what, what was your take on thoughts and prayers in the Buddhist perspective? Well, mm. <laughs> I didn't have this as an issue actually when I became a Buddhist because I even before I was a Buddhist, even as a child, I, I knew that I had a lot of cleaning up within my own backyard to do before yeah. I could really be beneficial to anybody. So I never had any issues with that. But I mean, the other thing that I would say is that there's nothing that, you know, that precludes people from going out and demonstrating and, and doing the kinds of things that they want to do. It's not like you pray and don't act. You yeah. can do both. But um, I mean, I think the emphasis is really is on our own minds, which really ultimately is the only thing we can control. We can't change anybody. It doesn't matter how many marches we're in or, you know, how many people we try to feed. I mean, there's problems are just kind of endless, but we can, um, you know, Shanti Davis says, you know, you can either put leather over your feet or you can put leather over the entire world. So, yeah. So when you're walking in like there's so many different, uh, borns and obstacles and you say, Oh, you know, let's change. Let's put leather over the whole world, but instead protecting your own feet. Uh, you know, putting shoes on will, will minimize the amount of effort. So picking the right, you know, you can't you can't do everything. So I, from what I get from that metaphor that you were saying for the audience' sake, you know, is that uh, you know, kind of doing the right action in the in the minimal amount of you know. Effort, I know. I yeah, do it with the right kind of mind. Right. I mean, my practice really is to love my family, is yeah. to learn how to accept them unconditionally and mm. just li- love them unconditionally and yeah. not feel somehow that, um, you know, that there's something wrong with that or I should kind of withhold or whatever to just to just love and expect and, ch- and cherish them. So, but that comes from, that comes from a mind. It comes from a wish. It comes from a mind that is, you know, working on trying to realize understand love first of all back to the conversation yeah. we're having about wisdom well what does love mean you know it's not attachment it's just wishing someone to be happy and uh, so understanding love and then working on kind of practicing it, meditating on it and thinking about it and contemplating it and then then putting it in action and then 
you know, kind of coming up against some of the walls that we've constructed for a variety of reasons and just deciding I need to knock this down. And for me, <laughs> looking at uh, Buddhists, back to your question, which I loved about Buddhists, I, I came to Buddhism and I, I thought there was one Buddha. I didn't realize that there were multiple Buddhas. It was when I first saw Tara up there, Mother Tara, that I realized, well, this is a woman, so this is not the same Buddha. <laughs> and then I started to kind of get a sense of what, what they all are. Um, yeah, they all are the same Buddha, but, but different natures. I, I've been very inspired by, you know, this year. <laughs> started off with an inspiration of... of uh, Avalokiteshvara, the Buddha of compassion. You know, I just love the story of him just seeing all of the suffering and weeping, mm. um, and his uh, tears forming a pool, and out of the pool uh, uh, arises the lotus. You know, the symbol of the of our minds that even though they're in the mud, they have the potential to be purified. And from the lotus, uh, Tara, the mother uh, Buddha, appearing and saying, "Don't cry. You know, I will help you." So I, I just find. Um, that story is so inspiring in so many ways. I mean, first of all, I love the fact that the, the rescuer is the woman. And I, I love the fact that the man is, feels comfortable crying mm-hmm. and that, um, that it's all good. It's, it's good to express your feelings and your emotions. And, and loving and caring about people is, is, is something beautiful to be you know, admired and to aspire to. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Neil? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I love what Gregory just said. You know, I'll yeah, go back to the idea, the idea of prayer. And for me, prayer is uh, a couple things uh, involved with prayer for me, or many things involved with prayer. For prayer for me, primarily is a wish. Uh, and if I pray for others, I'm making wishes for others. And I think I think that's a that's a very virtuous act. Uh, so. Uh, Prayers can fall into generally a couple categories. One, a wish for others to be happy. And uh, the other, a wish for others to find freedom from suffering. And I think I think those are very powerful minds. Uh, what also helps me is, and I consider this to be fortunate, is, is I do believe that I can sit here on this side of the table from you, Vijay, and make a prayer for you, and you can experience that prayer that we have across this table, a connection that transcends physical form, that our minds can connect. And what a beautiful way for our minds to connect than through a prayerful wish such as, I wish you, were ha- I wish you to be happy and I wish you to be free from suffering. And I think those are extraordinary connections that we can make with people. Thank and I think you, prayer you. is a vehicle for doing that. There are many vehicles for doing that. I think prayer is a vehicle for doing that. That's excellent. So beautiful. And I really appreciate that thought and that sentiment and then those words. Such a beautiful thing to say. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so now, like, in, for your own journey, how is your uh, practices and your understanding and your vision of the world, how has that changed as you, you know, from just being a student to becoming a teacher uh, that transition of becoming a teacher, how did that have an impact on your um, ability to see the world, would you say, you know? Well, it's been an interesting journey for me because I went for half a century telling people that I was more afraid to speak in public than I was to die, which, you know, yeah. turns out is actually common. I think a lot of people are petrified. So I was asked after I had been um, studying Buddhism for a few years to teach, and so I was came face-to-face with, um, like, my greatest fear. And, you know my love of the Dharma, you know, won out. And 
I, th I think, you know, being a teacher, is, it's just a, an amazing opportunity because it forces you to kind of look even a little deeper. It forces you to look at your own intentions a little deeper, at least it did me. And I realized through this process of looking that one of the things that was creating all of this anxiety and kind of rejection of public speaking was this kind of obsession I had with myself and how people, you know, what would people think of me? And because I was practicing Buddhism, I realized that that is actually uh, a delusion it's it's not helping me to be focusing on myself uh, we call that self um, self cherishing mm -hmm. and when i learned how to focus more on the students which you know that that suddenly the anxiety lessened and it became just a very helpful lesson and you know a lot of applications it came from a friend of mine who actually suggested to me I, i'd gone to her to, to help uh, and she was helping me doing breathing exercises to help me calm down. And she, she had told me, she said she doesn't have no recollection of this, but it's a good, I think, story of how our sangha can help us. She said to me, well, just look in your, the students' eyes and they'll tell you what they need. Yeah. And I, I probably did that. And it's just, I noticed right away that suddenly the anxiety was lessening. So we can look within our own minds by, by, by teaching is what is my intention? You know, is it really pure? Am I really trying to help people or am I trying to, you know, get my own radio show <laughs> thing. what am I trying to do yeah. and then the other thing is it forces you to know kind of to go a little deeper with the um, with understanding the, the, the Dharma the, the Buddhist teachings because it's one thing to be a student and to kind of noodle it over in your own mind but when you're now there with a microphone and you have people there that have come and paid money and they've, they've set aside some of their you know their precious time to hear you speak on something mm. you know it, it puts a whole another layer of kind of pressure in a good way yeah. on you to go, do I really know what it is that um, Buddha said? And, and, and am I able to communicate that in, to them in a way that is going to be helpful to them, that's, that's going to resonate and connect and will help them to change their lives? Yeah. And Neil, maybe talk a little bit about, uh, you know, New Kampa tradition as being a lineage with roots in, um, you know, the Tibetan tradition, but, you know, we had a lot of the uh, lineage holders in the New Kampa tradition are people like Atisha and uh, Jason Kappa who are from Tibet. But, um, you know, NKT or New Competition is something that's um, become a modern Buddhism for modern practitioners or people who have modern lives. So um, how would you say, you know, in your, you know, exploration of different uh, belief systems or, you know, beliefs, you come, you come into this fold and how is that really, um, in what ways has that really informed your growth, you know? So, really so one, one of the things I'll say is that uh, I would characterize myself uh, as having lived a life with very little to no spiritual interest. Mm -hmm. So it is, I actually think it is interesting, maybe from an ordinary perspective, that I ended up in a situation where I would quit my job, moved to New York City to study with a particular teacher, and dedicate my life to what would be considered, what, what I think is clearly spiritual practice. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that, 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 that actually surprised me. And, 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 it's, and it's, I go back to your original question about uh, the roots in Tibet and mm -hmm. then the Western, and, and kind of the Western practice. So we are, our roots are Tibetan. Well, they go back to the Buddha Shakyamuni, who was Indian or from India. And then, of course, uh, 
for our tradition, a teacher, a teacher who was Indian, but then uh, went to Tibet to teach uh, the Tibetans Buddhism, and then Jason Kappa, who was Tibetan. Uh, and there was an extraordinary lineage of teachings there. Uh, but I want to then tie it to Geshe Kelsen Gyatso, then, who came to uh, the West in the late 70s. And he began teaching, and he actually arrived in England, northern England, Lake District, and he began teaching. And he found that his teachings were not resonating, mm-hmm. that people were not interested in the Buddhism that he was teaching, Atisha's teachings, Jason Kappa's teachings, uh, extraordinary teachings that have led many people to liberation and enlightenment. But people weren't interested. So he went back to his teacher and he explained the problem. And his teacher gave him a, an extraordinary amount of a bit of wisdom. And he said, I am teaching to Tibetans. So I will teach in a manner that is suitable for Tibetans. You are teaching to Westerners. You need to teach in a manner or present the Dharma in a manner that is suitable to the Western mind. So do not change the meaning of Buddhist teachings, but you need to change the presentation to appeal to a Western mind. And clearly, he accomplished that because there are many Westerners who are now Kadampa Buddhists. Yeah, good, good. I will take a moment. I just want to take a moment to... Um for the um, listeners, as we start to wind down, that, that you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and um, let them know that Radio Free Brooklyn um, is a uh, nonprofit organization. That um, we are, our mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So, if you'd like to support our mission, we can continue to bring you quality community radio. We invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radiofreebrooklyn.org backslash donate. You can donate as little as a dollar or as every cent helps us to continue to stay on air. So please help support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. And remember that RFB is a 501c3 nonprofit. So your contribution is tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Again, that's radiofreebrooklyn.org backslash donate. Um, Radio Brooklyn has a free iPhone and Android app. You no longer have to be chained to your computer to listen. Just download the uh, Radio Free Brooklyn app from the App Store and Google Play or uh, iPhone, radiofreebrooklyn.org backslash iPhone or Android, radiofreebrooklyn.org backslash Android. You download the app and listen to wherever you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn wherever you are. Um, newsletter, we have a newsletter out, um, Radio Free Brooklyn newsletter, Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, every... Um, Every month, we'll send the latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events, as well as interviews, ticket giveaways, special offers, and RFB swag, and more. The emails come about once a month because uh, we're committed to a spam-free world. So you can sign up already for brooklyn.org backslash newsletter. And uh, Truth to Power show airs every Thursday at 9 a.m. Uh, it's our regular slot. So you can listen in uh, then um, or uh, you know, different shows play on uh, the public dinner slot. So you can listen in that time. So before we end, I'll just say um, last uh, parting uh, words on, um, you know, your future moving forward. Um, how have you or how do you feel you speak truth to power? Uh, but I can interpret that as, you know, finding your, your truth and turning that into power, empowering yourselves or however way you like to. So, you know, how you're moving forward to Find your truth, getting more empowered and, and empowering the community. If you speak a little bit to that, so as we close up. So speaking personally, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think many of us are are seeking happiness, uh, and we're seeking freedom from suffering. Uh, for me, I feel that I have actually found a pathway to accomplish both of those very basic wishes. And so my job is to continue to improve my practice, and to the extent that I'm making any progress at all, and to the extent that I'm offered the opportunity to share uh, my experiences with others, and then essentially to create a platform for countless people, countless living beings, to actually find everlasting happiness and freedom from suffering. Good, good. Go ahead. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I loved, loved all that. And definitely, uh, you know, I think Buddhism, the, the, the idea is that there's some reality that <laughs> is there that, you know, I'm not living, I, I, I mean, I know that I'm not living in alignment with reality. So for me, you know, the goal is to try to live in, in accordance with with reality. You know, the, the, these virtuous states of love and compassion and kindness and generosity and understanding, you know, the real nature of our existence, which is, you know, it, it is mind, is being created by mind and kind of move beyond this ordinary existence where everything seems ordinary and fixed and solid and, you know, and... Uh, Yep. And then the uh, delusions that can arise from that that ignorance. Yeah, yeah, good, good. And I think that definitely it's a struggle to um you know, maintain and keep the course and always for me at least always trying to remember and keep in mind of you know, today I'm gonna taking it step by step, today I'm just gonna work on one aspect of the path and, and not try to do everything all at once. Trying to just be patient, trying to just one day I'm just gonna be like I'm just gonna be patient. I'm just gonna be patient. I'm not gonna be angry. I'm not gonna be angry. And just working on that and slowly, slowly, you know, uh, making it there. You know, thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Vijay. Thank you, thank you Vijay. Now I'll be wrapping up the Truth to Power show. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. And please tune in to Reciprocity Radio on July 15th at five o'clock. Radio Free Brooklyn to listen to me guest host. Thank you. Oh, it's a mystery to me. We have agreed with which we have agreed. And you think you have to want more than you need. Until you have it all, you won't be You're a crazy breed I hope you're not lonely Without me